0: This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Today on IFS Talks, we're speaking with Robert Faulkner. Robert Faulkner has an undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology with a focus on the history of religions. In the early 1980s, he pursued his master's degree in psychology while balancing a career in construction and real estate investment. When Bob started as a therapist, he focused on the work of Milton Erickson and hypnotherapy. He then moved into working with Jack and Helen Watkins, who developed ego state therapy. In his career as a therapist, Bob spent considerable time at the Esselin Institute and decades involved in gestalt therapy. Robert has been familiar with IFS for over 20 years, but completely devoted himself to the model for the last 10. For more than a decade, he was the director of the Institute for Trauma-Oriented Psychotherapy. Bob was also one of the first men to speak publicly about being sexually abused as a child, and for many years he primarily worked with men with a similar trauma history. Now he works with people learning IFS. He has published six books, co-edited four, and most recently co-authored one with Dick Schwartz entitled Many Minds, One Self. Bob, thank you so much for being with us here today on IFS Talks, it's a privilege.
1: Oh, thank you, I'm delighted you invited me. I've really enjoyed your other talks online. I think you're doing a real real service to the i f s community.
2: Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. How is it for you, Bob, to hear this bio? What parts come up?
1: Who me? Is that me? Um, so there's some of that there's some of I know a lot of people with trauma histories have this. Sometimes we call it the imposter syndrome.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Ernie Rossi, a a great therapist and researcher, when he was getting his third PhD, what occurred to him when they handed him the, the diploma was, "I've fooled them again." <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, people, maybe especially men who were molested as children. No matter what happens in the outside world, they feel like they're fake. So there was a little, a little echo of that, but not painful at all. And as you read that biography, you know, there's, there's still that, who me?
2: Yes, it's still there. It's still there. Yes, who me? Yeah. Yes, it comes from those parts of yours that carry, still carries some some burdens yes of
1: course yeah and since we're going to focus today a lot on sexually men who were sexually abused as children I, i think i'd just sort of like to launch and talk about what my own history was like good and as we get further along why ifs has been so important to me wonderful i was raised in new york city in what from the outside was a church going upper-middle-class family, Mm -hmm. but from my earliest memories, my father was sadistically raping and abusing me, and my older brother. He had some of his gay lovers who were also uh, child molesters living in the house with the family throughout my childhood, sometimes one, sometimes more. They also abused me. Mom was institutionalized a few times for mental illness, and she also sexually abused me. My brother committed suicide, or let me be more precise, died in a probably suicidal accident when we were teenagers. Okay. And he had also at one point turned on me, I was the youngest brother, He was given the opportunity, he could sort of join the other men and start abusing me, or he could stay being one of the abused, and he took that opportunity. I would have taken that opportunity, too, if it had been offered to me. I was actually jealous that he was offered that opportunity. And because of knowing that about myself, It's allowed me to be compassionate with sex offenders and to work with them. Makes
2: sense, yes. Mm -hmm.
1: So, he committed suicide when we were teenagers. A few years later, when I was 21, my father was murdered in an unsolved crime. There was money in his pocket, so it wasn't a robbery. The police said, oh, it was probably about a woman. But he would have sex with anything. But women were not high on his list. I imagine Mm -hmm. he was molesting the wrong person's Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you can imagine, I was sort of a mess (laughs) coming out of a family like this.
2: Yeah, do you survive extreme events like you have been through as losing a brother to suicide, right?
1: Well, I think, I, <laughs> sometimes I joke they were angels in my life, but I'm not so sure how much of a joke that is anymore.
2: And also you've, you lost your father to, to murder?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was, you know, actually I was quite happy when he was murdered. A part of you. And I was ashamed because when I got the news, I was teaching at a high school, And the headmaster took me into his office and said, you know, your father's been murdered. And I cried. And I hated that man so much that uh, I was ashamed that I cried. (laughs) You know, but it's a very natural human reaction. And I think it's actually proof that something clean and good in me had not died. Mm.
2: Beautiful, yes.
1: Yeah.
0: So there's a, a lot of painful experiences that, that you went through and, and adjusted to. And I was thinking, just reading your bio, um, where the trauma was and where these parts were as you were, you know, maybe uh, working in construction and real estate development. And how, how did that all live in you in the early days?
1: of? Oh, it was married.
0: I was wondering,
1: yeah. I was tough. I was totally independent. I didn't need anybody else on the planet. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I drank way too much and was a binge drinker. And uh, in college, I started doing LSD, and that made me hate alcohol. (laughs) So ironically, I quit drinking entirely for many years, which was... My father was also an alcoholic and mom was also probably an alcoholic and definitely a prescription pill addict. So in the early years, I worked very hard. I was a very active athlete. I played competitive tennis. I would work hard all day, play tennis, have some pot, maybe have a glass or two of wine and I could sleep through the night, maybe. Sleep has always been an incredible issue for me, as it is for most survivors. Mm-hmm. For most of my life, I would have nightmares so bad that I would sweat through many shirts, many t-shirts. I had to have three or four to change, and I'd wake up screaming and throw the, throw the covers around. I just thought everybody was like this. I didn't know, you know, this was some weird thing that people thought was very odd.
0: Was there something that happened that began to unlock the, the buried trauma?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I You know, like I was saying, I was very active physically and very aggressive. And, you know, the construction world, they encourage you to be crude. Yeah. You know, we, the way we said good morning to each other on a job site would get you thrown out of a training. <laughs> you know, it was very different worlds. I had a back injury. And overnight, I couldn't do the heavy construction work. I couldn't play tennis. And I lost all my friends because they were all tennis people or construction people.
2: Oh, you lost?
1: Yeah. And I thought. You know, I thought I'd done a lot of work. I, you know, studied Jung a lot and done all this other stuff. But when that happened, it it broke open all the trauma and uh, all these parts came rushing out. And... um, If somebody had told me that was one of the great blessings of my life at the time, I would have tried to strangle them. (laughs) And it was one of the great blessings of my life. And it's really unfortunate that our blessings have to be so well disguised. This one rabbi said, that uh, you have to give thanks for everything because we're too dumb to tell the blessings from the curses. My father was also the deacon and trustee of a big Presbyterian church, besides being a businessman. So I did not go into a church of any kind for more than 25 years. And the first time I tried to go into a church, I nearly vomited. I became physically nauseous. I don't think people heal from this kind of extreme trauma without some kind of spiritual connection. And I think that's one reason why the abuse by priests is so poisonous to people, because it prevents them from going back to the well where they can find the deep healing. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, I'd done therapy. I thought I knew my inner world, but I'd been fooling myself. And with that back injury, it really started opening up. I found a good therapist here. Um, You know, Santa Cruz, when I started this stuff, no therapy schools recognized child abuse as a major factor in trauma, none. In the late 1960s, there was a major textbook for psychiatrists that said, incest is vanishingly rare, less than one in a million cases. And when it happens, it's often good for the children.
2: Oh my God, that was the 60s? That's like
1: 1968, I think. So we have come a very, very long ways. Yes. Santa Cruz happens to be the place where uh, uh, Ellen Bass and Laura Davis lived and they wrote The Courage to Heal. Mm -hmm. She's a writing teacher and a lot of the women she was helping write wrote about being abused as a child and they said i've never told anyone and then there was this place here in town called the survivors healing center that was founded by a couple of local therapists who worked with child sexual abuse and it was a storefront operation with no money and they were the pioneers and all the schools and all the experts and all the big shots thought they were nuts, you know? So it was a very, for me, there was almost a crusading attitude of, hey, (laughs) it's time to tell the truth.
2: It's time to tell the truth. Bob, you you joined the One in Six Movement.
1: Yes, I have. They came much later that much later. Do you want to
2: explain what is it, the the mission and the purpose of this platform?
1: Okay. Yeah. The current estimates, and I believe the world expert on statistics on child sexual abuse is a man with the name of David Finkelhor at the University of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So I usually rely on his statistics. I think he's the best that's out there. He says it's about one in three women are sexually abused before the age of 18 and about one in six men. I think the numbers are much closer. I just think uh, we men lie about it a lot more. And why is so? Well, I think for men, there's, even, there's tremendous shame for any survivor. But for a man to stand up and say, I was raped. Mm-hmm is even harder, I think, than for a woman. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, um, you know, the shame is tremendous.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: It's very, very hard for a man to admit something like that. Anyway, so many years later, there was an organization called One in Six that was founded that was specifically to work with men who were sexually abused and to invite people to Publicly say they were sexually abused and be photographed and sometimes give video interviews and tell other men It's okay to say this publicly, but that was I don't think that started until 20 years later Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did I was on the board of directors of the survivors healing center for a long time and worked with other nonprofits So the kind of work I was doing early when I was working with my own abuse, was a local therapist who had developed her own method. It was very much parts work. She didn't call them parts. She called them the insiders. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: The insiders. Which
1: I still, it's a name I use. So it was very much, very much parts work. Not as sophisticated as IFS, I don't think. But I worked with her. She's. I still see her every once in a while. She's retired, and uh, I, you know, but I still see her some. And I was so fortunate to find a sympathetic therapist that long ago.
2: That finally validated your experience, or. Could also work it with it.
1: Yeah, could also work it, and knew about parts, and knew about you know parts who hid and exiles and protectors, even though she didn't use that language at all. Yeah.
2: At the time, you were in your thirties, uh, or yeah,
1: yeah, thirties, mm-hmm. early forties. But I was already seeing a few clients, and back then I wrote a book under a pseudonym called A Man's Recovery from Traumatic Child Abuse, uh, which described my own recovery in detail. And I did not want my clients knowing all the details of sadistic sexual abuse that I went through. And I think that book's still in print. I'm not sure. Um, I used the Pseudonym Robert Blackburn Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. So I did that, and I worked with Jack and Helen Watkins, the ego state people. I got to know them, and they used to come down to San Francisco Bay Area, and I went up to where they lived in Montana. And ego state therapy is very much like IFS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one thing that's quite different Is they explicitly use uh, hypnosis to access the uh, the inner states, which, as you know, Dick doesn't.
2: Dick doesn't. Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. But you know, if you watch people, when Dick works with someone, when he asks them to go inside, they enter an altered state of consciousness. Indeed. They are profoundly altered, and Dick doesn't like discussing altered states of consciousness, and I think he has good reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: it sounds like f- for you your experience with the Watkins was was a valuable part of your healing process and learning process
1: very valuable and I worked a lot with uh, Milton Erickson and his work not directly with him but with his eldest daughter Carol Erickson was a major force in my life and they very much uh, you know so I was very familiar with all the hypnotic research and uh so I came from that sort of altered state paradigm. And I, I actually like Dick's way much better of just asking people, go inside, who's there? And they enter this other world, this inner world, without any folder all or <laughs> special invitation. The other stuff now seems to me quite unnecessary.
0: Were there exiles that you approached through hypnosis that you might not have met through
1: IFS? Mm, Good question. I don't know. What I did early on, and a lot of people did this early on in the trauma field that was a major mistake, is I would use hypnosis. Hypnosis is a powerful tool Mm -hmm. to push past the protectors, batter down the walls, and get to the, what I thought was the, the meat, you know, the intense trauma memories and all this, you know, the terror and the pain, you know, and I just went for that. And the model was abreaction, catharsis kind of model. Yep. And it worked, but it caused tremendous pain and distress. And after a session like that, there'd be huge backlash and self-hate and you know, loathing, and internal civil war, mm-hmm. and all the things that Dick's more sophisticated, gentle model avoids.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you, you overrule the protectors, and then probably a lot of backlash, a lot of
1: firefighter oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: activity.
1: They were not happy, no. to put it mildly.
2: So, Bob, when did you get across with IFS?
1: Well, I was trying to figure that out, and I, he's actually in the bibliography of that that book I just referred to that I wrote back in the early 90s or mid-90s. But I didn't really get serious. you know. I was so tied into the Gestalt community yeah. at Esalen, mm-hmm. which is I live quite close to Esalen. So I've been there... Mm, More than 120 times. And I knew all the Gestalt people. I was so tied in there, I wouldn't let go of that. It took a lot for me to realize, hey, this IFS stuff is a lot better. Mm -hmm. And quite similar to Gestalt in many ways. In many ways. But better and stronger.
2: So to you, IFS offers a very powerful way to let go of the shame and self-blame that every sexual abuse survivor feels
1: yeah and one of the great blessings of it is this knowledge that i see ifs there's lots of ways to describe the therapy process but one i really like is first you go to protectors but not expecting them to change at all Mm -hmm. all you're trying to do is get their permission Once you have their permission to go to the exiles, you can go to the exiles, do the witnessing, retrieval, unburdening. Then you go back to the protectors and ask them to change. That simple, simple seeming model takes so much of the suffering and difficulty out of therapy yeah. for extreme abuse survivors. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the therapy no longer is this incredible battle. Mm -hmm.
2: So, Bob, what parts come up in IFS, sexual abuse treatment, when you sit with someone, and we all sit, even if we don't know, very often with people that I can see they have some sexual issue and abuse in his past, but not often they share or they know it. But for you, once you have already long experience with um, sexual victims of abuse, what parts emerge in IFS sexual abuse treatment?
1: Well, there's huge protectors, huge ones. Um, Self-hatred, self-loathing, Uh, in- incredible amounts of self hatred. And then they're the terrified exiles who are back there being abused. And very often, the self loathing protectors are doing everything they possibly can do to keep those exiles locked in the basement.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And they will, if they think the therapist is attacking this, trying to open the basement door, Mm -hmm. they'll attack the therapist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know? And rightly so. They think this is how to save the person's life. So that's why this three stage model is so important of getting permission from these protectors. And they're often or they used to be for me hard to be compassionate with. Because, you know, you see this part that's absolutely despising your client and trying to destroy him or Okay. Um, all right. Here's a vivid example. I use this example a lot because we have to ask every client. It's really bad to assume anything. A lot of times, for instance, I'll have an intuition, this person was abused. I don't go with that. I never say that to a client, and I don't take, I don't take those assumptions for real. Mm-hmm. Good. So I had this male client who was a severe cutter you know, Mm self-mutilation. And he cut on the trunk on his stomach and chest. And one time he had cut himself so badly, hundreds of cuts, that he was in the hospital from blood loss. And I thought, oh, I know what this is about. You know, if he causes physical pain, it will stop the emotional pain. And, you know, I sort of went in there, a little arrogant, I I, I didn't go into the hospital. I dealt with him by phone saying, um, you know, just sort of thinking I knew what was going on. And he said, oh, no, Bob, that's not why I do that. It was my mom who abused me and my skin liked her touch. I hate my skin. Okay. Complex. I never would have guessed that in a million years. No. You know? And this guy was kind enough not to fire me as a therapist <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for being arrogant and thinking I knew what was going on in him. Always learning. But boy, has he been a good teacher, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Right. That's, I guess we need to maintain our curiosity all the time and, and not make any foregone conclusions.
1: Even, even on ones you think are, you know, drop-dead simple. You know, we know why they do this. No, we don't. And one of the things uh, Dick says that I like a lot is, don't think, just ask.
2: Yeah, just ask.
1: That's, That's one of the little sayings I have going around in the back of my head often when I'm doing therapy. Don't think. Don't think, just ask. Don't think, just ask. The other ones I have going around the back of my head are, wait. Why am I talking?
2: Yeah, wait. Precious when.
1: Because I should be listening. And when I'm really bad with the weight, when mm-hmm. I'm running my mouth too much, I go to waste. Why am I still talking?
2: <laughs> well done, Bob.
1: <laughs> so those are the slogans I often have running in my head.
2: Bob, I'd like to quote Nancy Wonder colleague of ours, an IFS colleague and she's telling us about how uh, sexual abuse impacts our system and, and she's saying Most child sexual abuse victims don't trust other people, especially those with an incest history. It's hard for them. The research shows that incest survivors have difficulty with relationships. They have trouble regulating their emotions and relationships. They even avoid intimacy. A lot of sexual abuse victims avoid things in general. Some also develop sexual parts that develop sexual abuse. And other clients also avoid sex at all. And finally, most people who have had any kind of sexual abuse have a difficult time just staying present with sexual partners. So Yeah,
1: I think that's all true.
2: That's all true. It's devastating. Yes, it can be Yeah,
1: devastating. And, you know, there's one... Um, I think sexual abuse survivors tend to go in two directions. They don't have a sort of normal attitude towards sexuality. They either become totally hypersexual mm-hmm. and try and have sex all over the place with as many partners as possible, um or they become sexually anorexic. Mm -hmm. It's very much parallel to eating disorders. You know, sort of binge purge or someone who horrendously overeats versus someone who's starving themselves to death. Sexual abuse survivors are very much like that with sexuality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to mention one other person I haven't mentioned yet who's incredibly helpful, and that's Pia Melody. She was a RN, not a regular therapist, and she's a 12-step a self-identified alcoholic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she worked a great deal with survivors of sexual abuse. And the system she developed was very, very similar to IFS. She, she talked about the wounded inner child, which would be our exiles, and then she talked about the adult adapted wounded child, which would be our protectors. Okay. And, and she knew how to work back and forth between them. And, and she did all this in, in a framework of 12-step addictions treatment. And I think, I think that's one area where IFS really could grow a lot. We really could partner with the 12-step community much more effectively than we're doing, because I think they actually fit together very, very well.
0: There's also that spiritual element there that's a, a really profound aspect of healing that's known in the 12th step and, and mm-hmm. similar to self-energy.
1: I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I didn't want to forget to talk about. One of the things that so moved me about IFS and was so important, Dick said, self can never be damaged Mm -hmm. no matter what happened to you it can't even be dirtied the message i had gotten most of my life from all of the quote experts the best you can hope for is sort of a nasty little life and you probably should be on meds and don't expect much of anything you're you're messed up you know too bad it happened you're crippled no hope dick said no no, self cannot be touched. It can't be damaged, no matter what happened. That was so powerful for me. And that is so powerful for abuse survivors. Yeah, I'm not really in the trenches anymore. I spend almost all my time training therapists and helping people learn IFS. But I have, I have one guy who's still really in the trenches. This guy was badly sexually abused and then became a hunter when he was in his early teenage years, killing animals. Then started torturing the animals and then started having sex with them while he was torturing them to death. This man tested the limits of my compassion. But I've come to love him deeply, and this man hated himself more than I have ever seen anybody hate themselves. For him, this message that you have something in you that cannot be destroyed, it cannot even be dirtied, I think was life-saving.
0: Yeah, it counters those those deeply held beliefs of being broken, being
1: yeah. yeah, and all the attachment studies. I think are are so poisonous for people. I think they're misinterpreted. But these, you know, people who say, "Oh, if you don't get it by the time you're four or something, you're
2: you are lost. You know, mm-hmm.
1: You're hopeless. hopeless. That is so wrong, so wrong."
0: You've experienced that personally and, and, and worked with people who have countered that.
3: Yeah.
1: In some ways, I'm still a mess, but... I think I've led a life that helps a lot of people. And I'm happier. I'm in my early 70s. And I'm happier now than I've ever been. Wow, beautiful. And more joyous and more full of love. Um, I want to mention one other thing, it just came up. The image of self being undestroyed for me is like a stormy day no matter how bad the storm is the sun is not affected
2: Mm,
1: (laughs) you know not at all not at all you know there could be floods and your house is blown down and all this happens the sun is still there not even dirty nothing happened
2: beautiful idea Mm -hmm.
1: So that's the the daylight image of self. I also think there's a night sky image that's really important to me. That if you look at the night sky and just pick one little area of it, it could be just black, you know, nothing. Mm -hmm. You get uh, binoculars, you might see a couple dim stars. You get a good telescope, you see a few more stars you get a really good telescope. You can see stars and galaxies, and you actually can see back in time, almost to the beginning, the big bang of the universe. I think that's what more advanced IFS work is like. You don't come to an end point of, oh, I got this now. It just opens up to deeper and deeper realms in that inner world that allow more and more access to self and to a a lot of other things that are of great value.
2: Very inspiring. Bob, what do you enjoy most to do nowadays?
1: Oh, this is going to sound... I dance a lot. Um, And... I often, I haven't been doing it as regularly as I should, but I get up very early. I like to get up before dawn and be outside at dawn. And I dance with the trees. I live out in the forest. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, my way of praying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are these, uh, there's an ethnic group in Russia called the Mari, M-A-R-I. And they never pray indoors. They say, if you're in a building, you're limited into a particular culture yeah. and historic mm-hmm. framework. But if you're out in the woods, you're in a much bigger container. Makes sense. You know? And in California, where I live, it's not such a big deal to go outside to do this. But in northern Russia, where they live, this is a big commitment. The challenge. <laughs> so they inspire me. Yeah.
0: What a contrast to that, to that church that brought up the somatic nausea. You've, you've created your own commune with nature.
1: Yeah. And a man who was a big part in redeeming spirituality for me was a man named Brother David Stendhal Rast, who's a Benedictine monk, and mm-hmm. he's, his main topic is gratefulness. gratitude. Gratefulness. He's written mm-hmm. many books. And, and I, <laughs> I was sort of an aggressive jerk. for a large (laughs) part of my life and I would go around to these spiritual leaders and teachers and I would say your God's all good right and all powerful and um, you know and they go oh yeah yeah and I'd say well I can remember being a six-year-old cowering in the corner of my bed against the wall my father's come in the room he's drunk he's naked he has an erection He's red-faced, screaming obscenities at me. Where is your God? Where is your God in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And most of them would turn away like they smelled something bad. You know, Mm. they didn't. Brother David came towards me. Wow. He put his hand on my shoulder. Wow. And he said, God was there, Bob. He was looking out in the room through your eyes, and he was weeping. Wow. Wow. So, I spent as much time as I could with Brother David. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I wanted that kind of spiritual presence in my life. And he's still alive, but he's in his late 90s now and in seclusion in his home monastery outside of Vienna.
2: Bob, you are quite committed to IFS in many ways, right?
1: Yes, definitely.
2: Do you wanna share with us? You just wrote this wonderful book with Dick, Many Minds One Self. But you are also teaching and practicing.
1: Yeah, I'm um one of the other things I enjoy a lot besides dance is studying. People that's really, you know, annoying or bad, but I love it. So that was a lot of that book with Dick was my joy in studying, you know, and doing all the research. And I get, I can start reading like these articles and academic books that put most people to sleep. And I'm fascinated and sort of come to eight hours later and go, you know. So I'm working on some other books um, around IFS Mm -hmm. issues. And uh, I teach a lot. I've been a program assistant many times. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And and something I'm really excited about now is what's happening with IFS in China. But let me say, I do see people. You know, I have a few clients who are still the heavy-duty abuse clients, but most of the people I see are people who are learning IFS.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: But what's happening in China, there's a woman, Dr. Hailan Guo, who founded this organization. She's sort of like the uh, Oprah Winfrey of China okay. or the Dr. Phil, mm-hmm. you know, she, every, many, many people know her. She's a media presence. And she developed this stuff she calls Inner Peace Coaching, which is mainly IFS and some, uh, some of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer's uh, self-compassion work. Mm-hmm. And she has turned IFS into a peer counseling method. She says almost no Chinese person would go to a therapist. It's way too shaming. But they will do peer counseling. So she's developed this complex system of supervisors and supervisors of supervisors and short-term training for these peer counseling groups. And she has this whole pyramid Pyramids of trainees and supervision over supervision, and she's reaching many, many people. She she looks like this sort of friendly little old grandmother, mm-hmm. and she's actually one of the toughest people I've ever met. And she just looked at me as though she was, you know, just saying something casual. Just Bob, it's my goal to relieve the suffering of millions.
3: Wow, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I. I really like her model, and uh, she's having me help train some people and do some classes there, and it's, it's fascinating to work through translators and in another culture. The inner world's the same.
2: The inner world is the same, yes, yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. the
1: same. There's some, The differences are not, I don't think they go so deep. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm mm-hmm. fooling myself, but I think mm-hmm. we're basically the same.
0: Have you been traveling over there in the past or have you been mostly connecting with with china online
1: just online just online uh, they invited me but thanks to the virus i'm not going at least not for the foreseeable future
2: what future bob can you see for the ifs model i mean what future how, how much ifs can impact not only our field, the psychotherapy field, but even more than that.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It becomes more of a life path, rather than something that's focused on healing difficulties or pathologies. Yeah. (laughs) And a very good friend of mine who's an attorney uh, is deeply involved in IFS. And he's IFS in mediation. And we've had some trainings out here with, um, mainly with divorce lawyers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's very positive. IFS in education. Yes. There's now a a friend of mine in, he teaches in the adult school in Salinas. Salinas is maybe the roughest town in my neighborhood. Very, very Mexican, Mm -hmm. a lot of gangs, a lot of violence and he teaches the the people who are uh, who, who dropped out of high school and are now back mm-hmm. you know trying to get some kind of equivalency diploma and he's using IFS in the classroom and he's been so successful that his the principal of his school has invited him to train the other faculty and that's been so successful that now the whole school district is having him train other teachers in how to use IFS in the classroom.
3: Beautiful, mm-hmm.
1: and he he sort of has to disguise it a little bit because he's not a licensed therapist. Mm-hmm. So they call it psychosocial education programs. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the IFS Foundation has funded a, a study, an outcome oh. study on IFS in oh. oh. education.
2: Mm-hmm. Great.
1: And I'm, I'm also uh, working with some ministers and spiritual directors. IFS is perfect for, you know, this kind of spiritual growth. It's, it's such a good fit for many of them.
2: Beautiful. Paul. thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and teacher. And I hope we can keep meeting, maybe we sit again for another talk, and for other sharings of this model of our work and our lives.
1: I hope. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you too.
0: I thank you so much for your tenderness and your courage and for allowing us to to hear about some of the burdens you've worked with. and. Uh, I feel a lot of admiration for what you've done and how you've contributed. So thank you for being with us.
1: You're so welcome.